Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Yeh and... Mayu, what's going on, everybody? Austin, what's going on? <laughs> yeah, I was just expecting something very, you know, some, a more meaningful question because you yeah. took a little pause, but it was the same shit. You, know, you played me. Um, but things are going well right now. Uh, our team is ramping up on the wholesaling side. Um, so we sent out flyers for our new acquisitions managers and, uh, we're, we're, we're well over $150,000, uh, not $150,000, that'd be crazy. 150K, we're 150K flyers a month. Holy Imagine we're spending hundred and yeah, that's more crazy. than 150K <laughs> flyers a month. I was going to say $150,000 worth of flyers a month. That'd be fucking, it would be bankrupt. Yeah, <laughs> <You know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so we're really ramping up on advertising. And then we're also um, hiring bird dogs. I guess not hiring, but taking a group of mentees, which we will be grooming um, to find off-market leads. And the best part is they don't really have to spend too much money on marketing, right? Like they're really just about, it needs to be people who hustle and grind and don't mind putting the hours in. So if you looked at my last couple of posts, there were some testimonials of bird ducks that I had previously. We're looking to bring that back in, provide training sessions, accountability calls, so on and so forth, so that we can uh, start making people some money. And as a result, uh, we make money as well. So win-win situation. That's dope, man. And eventually the bird dogs, I guess, have the opportunity to move up and, and you know, become wholesalers as well. If they, you know, sell your trade and, and you, you like what you're doing, you can kind of evolve as well. Right. So. Exactly. Like if you want to get into investing safer down payment, if you want to do your whole own wholesaling thing, that's cool as well. Um, if you just want to learn to get deals so that eventually you can buy your own properties, that's also fine. Cool, man. Cool. Um, yeah, I guess on my end this weekend, I didn't ask you what was happening on your end. Fuck you, Austin. I was, I was like, really? I'm like, is this guy going to ask me? You're like, what is no, that? I'm not. I'm like, no, we're <laughs> just going to jump straight into the podcast. No, what's up, man? How's things um, with you? Yeah, I, I think on my end, this weekend was uh, the first time I went to the Chesley project after a few weeks now and made good projects. Pro- it's Chesley or Chelsea? It's Chesley. It's, hmm. it's Chesley, right? I don't remember. I don't actually know. <laughs> I don't okay, actually whatever. know. You went down to the called. project? Yeah, whatever. So I went down there and I checked it out. So that that's going good. Like honestly, that that house was like the the probably the most disgusting house that I've ever bought in my life. So like you know to see how far it's come is in a couple of weeks is pretty good. We're trying to get ready for a September listing, but we'll see how that goes. You know these timelines and stuff are always a mess. Um, I'm actually looking to like start outsourcing more of my mortgage business because I, I really like the mortgage business. It's it's sick because like you work with some clients where like. I've like helped at least four or five clients like kind of negotiate terms and like structure a deal to like with like private second kind of BTB kind of terms that like or like credit on closing and stuff like that, right? Like, you know, things are kind of operating in the grave. But I've helped so many clients kind of structure that that it feels like I'm like buying the property with them. I'm like, this is sick. It's a lot of fun. But there's like a lot of like compliance and like DocuSign and like signing packages and shit I really don't want to like work on, right? So like I'm starting like trying to figure out, you know that part of the business and what can be outsourced and what can't. Right. Um, and then the other I'll thing, DocuSign can definitely be outsourced. Yeah. Fuck. Yeah. DocuSign's act. I don't think anyone will ever understand how big it was like, or like 
I guess if you're in the, in the industry, like realtors must get it real bad, right? Imagine how many docu signs they're doing, but especially um, if there are amendments and changes, like it's it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah. It could take a significant chunk of your day. <laughs> um, but yeah, other than that, man, I think uh, yeah, things are going good. Uh, social media is also another thing that I've decided that I've got to focus more time on. I think you and I both like. I, and the worst part about it is like my coaching students, I'll tell them that like, you guys got to focus on social media. I'm like, shit, like my social media is really slacking right now. So I got to step it up. But uh, yeah, man, that's, that's pretty much all that's going on with me. Let me ask you about that property that you said was very disgusting. In what way was it disgusting? Because I stepped into one of my prop, one of my units of a uh, unit today, and it was probably the most disgusting unit that I've been in. Yeah. So I just want to hear your horror story first. Uh, it was, well, okay. There were two aspects that were super disgusting. One is about half an inch of water in the basement under piles of garbage bags. Oh, Jesus. That's right. So like, bad. that's pretty disgusting. <laughs> and then the second disgusting thing is like a, a bedroom, probably like an eight by 10 bedroom filled to the top with garbage, but not garbage in garbage bags, right? Like plates, napkins, food. Ugh. Just like nastiness, right? And then the, I, I think it was also kind of the surprise to it because it was blocked up with a door that I couldn't open. And so I kind of had to push the door open. So you're kind of in the room when you push a door open, right? <laughs> and then uh, I was like, fuck. <laughs> it was just kind of- How the, did the, how did it smell? Uh, I, I wore like the blessed part about a mask, bro. You wear a mask, you don't smell shit. Like it still smells a little bit, but like, I mean, it smells okay. Yeah, whatever. It smells but like we're, I think we're both like pretty immune to the smells. It's like, ah, no, man. I, uh, money. So, money. <laughs> I went to a property today. Yeah. Um, not today. Sorry. I went to the property in the weekend with my contractor yeah. and prior to me stepping in two people, two or three people who previously went into the unit. So like <laughs> another contractor is getting a quote from property manager and someone else was like, this is probably the worst unit they ever been in. They didn't know how someone could live in it. And I was just like, whatever, like we bought a house where the subfloor would break through when you'd fall straight in the basement and it was bad, <laughs> but like, you know, like we, we, we think we've been through it all. And yeah. I step in that unit and I shit you not, as soon as I opened the door, like I'm about to throw up, it was that bad. Like I've never smelled a dead body, but I can imagine that's what a rotting dead body smells. It's what was the smell? Unbearable. From? I don't, I didn't even check. Cause it was that bad. My contractor went in and then he stepped out he's like, brother, I can't. He's <laughs> like, this is bad. Like, this is like, Damn. I don't know. It, I don't know. And we didn't try to find where it's coming from, but it was, it was horrendous. You, you walked out like, of that, you walk out of that without getting an estimate. Like it was that sorry? bad. You walked out without getting an estimate from the contractor. Yeah. Well, the scope of work is going to be like a gut, you know, and we stepped in all of the other units. Um, so he had an idea of what, like, it wasn't going to be anything different. It just needs to be gutted down, you know, like w it, it was the same layout as some of the other units we went into. So he's like, he doesn't need to go in there. Like he can kind of like vote it out without going in there. Yeah. Um, given we went to the other units, but yeah, like, I don't know what the cause is and I'm curious to know what it is, but it was like, as soon as you open the door, like you just get a whiff of it and it's, it's unbearable. Um, but yeah, I guess like as investors, we always... <laughs> And someone was living there, uh, by the way, you know, <laughs> so yeah. that makes things even worse. As investors, uh, like right. we're always just going to be surprised. You think you've been through it all, but you really haven't. Yeah. Yeah. My contractor on Chelsea, when he got out there, he literally walked in the house. He's like, man, he called me. He's like, how the fuck do you guys find this shit? Like you guys just find the most fucked up houses. I just kind of laughed and he, he just was not happy because he drove like hours and he was going to do like this, like cleanup job that he charges like 
like two thousand dollars or something for junk removal, which is pretty standard. And he, I told him there's a lot of shit, but like whatever. And then he gets there, he's like, dude, no, like I need like five or ten grand to like do this shit. Like this is fucked. And I was like, I just laughed. I'm like, yeah, man. Well, you said two grand. So. <laughs> <laughs> We're always breaking past our expectation of fucked up profits. It is what it is. Anyway, so we'll jump into today's podcast episode. We have Victoria soon. She's an architect and a real estate investor. And I feel like investors like back then got started much younger, but she bought her first property when she was 19 years old and she pursued a career in architecture. Um, we get into a lot of the nuts and bolts on the difference between uh, BCIN and uh, architects. We get into her investing journey, her unique approach of bringing properties to the, the highest and best use, and even exploring a bit into modular homes as well, which is what Victoria is taking a look into. Um, she's very passionate in real estate. When we talk about investors who are truly passionate in the craft and enjoy what they do, She's one of those investors. It's going to be an information-packed episode. Uh, I'm just scratching the surface of the different topics we talk about. I know you'll you you guys will enjoy this one. So make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. We are joined with a very special guest today, and I think the first um, architect actually ever on our podcast. We're here with Victoria. Victoria, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Awesome, Victoria. So for anyone that doesn't know Victoria, well, we, we both know her kind of, at least I know her through the Corey coaching group, but why don't you tell everyone a little bit about what you do and your background? Yeah, so my background is in uh, design and architecture. Um, I would say I'm not officially an architect, and I only say that because it's a highly regulated industry. So for anybody who is um has studied architecture, they know you can't officially call yourself an architect until you've kind of gone through lengthy amount of training. So I'd say like, I'm basically at that point, I'm about to register. But beyond that, yeah, I'm also a real estate investor. I bought my first property when I was 19 with my sisters. And then since then, I grew my portfolio a little bit. But then I decided like, hey, I'd like to join some coaching and really kick it up a notch and treat this like a real business. So that's why I joined Corey McKinnon's group. It's been awesome. Been there for a couple of months now. And yeah, I'm joining that. And really now just exploring the possibilities of merging design, architecture, and real estate investing towards some of my passion projects and then also helping other real estate investors. Awesome. Yeah. So, so let's, let's dig into that a little bit because I'm actually kind of curious here. Um, so what are the possible... You know what? Maybe we should talk about this later. But first, let's, okay, first let's talk about... Um, what have you done in the investing side today? Cause I know you said you bought your first property at 19. That's pretty young. Um, like really young, <laughs> um, makes, makes Austin look bad. Uh, so, so tell, us, tell us about that and, and how you, and, and kind of where you went from there. Sure. Yeah. So I think like I have three older sisters. I always, always kind of start my story like this because with that, it kind of gave me the foresight to really think about like, you know, they are working. I'm going to have to work to save up for university, for example, and what do I want to do? So they were working their summers at um, kind of like a, a packing facility, kind of making cardboard boxes, that, that kind of thing. And I knew like if I didn't find myself a job, then I'd be like kind of stuck doing that. So I was always looking for like jobs here and there. I was like a soccer referee. And then I became like a kitchen designer at Rona and um through that, I kind of got into design and like the interior renovation stuff. And then I really wanted to put my money somewhere that I saved from these small jobs. So 
started thinking about like mutual funds investing. I had my mom kind of invest for me because I wasn't old enough at the time. And then uh, after that, I was just like, okay, what's next? Like, I want bigger returns. Like, what should I do? And then I thought about real estate investing. So that was always on my mind, even like from pretty young age, like 16, 17. And then it was just a matter of like, how can I get 16? <laughs> yeah. Holy crap. <laughs> <laughs> so it was like, just watching those HDTV shows, right? Like I just yeah. thought it was super cool. And then it was just a matter of like, how can I get this done? So I, yeah, I kind of ran these ideas through my, my sister and then kind of got into it by finding a real estate agent on the internet. And then I booked an appointment to see some condos in Mississauga. That's where I grew up. And then from there, I brought my oldest sister with me. And then she was, we started running through the numbers with the agent and it started to make sense. So she kind of was more convinced with the idea. And then um, a family friend, they were a broker. So we kind of booked um, townhouses, like tours through townhouses and detached homes where the numbers were even better. And then we kind of ultimately together pulled our resources and bought our first rental property. Um, and that was like a buy and hold in Mississauga. Nice. Is that just out of curiosity? Is that still in your portfolio to this day? It's not. We sold it uh, pre-COVID. So it was March 2020, I think. Yeah. The one like things were just locking down that we actually were in the process of selling it. That was a hot market. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah it was, I think it's pretty good. Like we had a pretty good run. Like if you think in, in retrospect, if we waited a couple months, we could have uh, made it out even better. But like, we're all happy. Like we're all different stages in our lives. So I think it was just timing. Like it made sense for everybody to just sell it. You know, we made our profit and then we're all happy. So let's dig a, d- a bit deeper into that. So you bought your first um, investment property in Mississauga. And, and where do you go from here? Because uh, I would assume that that does require a, a decent amount of capital, even if it's split three ways. And with a lot of people after the first property, they don't really know how to expand or grow from there. Yeah, so it's funny. So that was bought in 2011, to put it in perspective. And then we bought that at like 260, 265. So I remember putting each of us put like 10 to 15K in. So if that actually yeah. doesn't sound too bad, <laughs> <laughs> so, like I saved that through my summer job. So this yeah. is like before I was basically, I think I, I, we bought it when I was in like, um, like in university, but like a lot of that was basically from money I saved up pre-university. So yeah, it wasn't too bad in, like compared to today's market. So it's kind of crazy to think in retrospect, but, um, yeah, be, after that, I didn't think about real estate. Like, I didn't know how to scale. I didn't really educate myself in real estate. And I think that would be one of the main things that like, yeah, I started early, but I didn't scale as fast because I just didn't have the knowledge and surround myself with the people that could kind of like tell me what I could do next. Right. And to be honest, like that wasn't really something I thought of because I was still on the path. Like I need to go to university, complete my degree get my job, you know, like I didn't think of it as a way to exit or, you know, to retire. So after the first property, I just went to university and I was focused on completing my degree and like doing my co-ops and that kind of thing. So where did you go from there? When did you end up buying your next piece of real estate? Yeah, it was after I graduated. So after I did my undergrad, um, that's when I bought my first property. It was in Kitchener. And what started that was actually, I, I was working a job in Waterloo and I was kind of bored. Like I knew that 
um, lots of things are going on in Kitchener Waterloo with the tech scene. So I was kind of seeing like, hey, what's happening in terms of design? And to be honest, there wasn't a ton just because there's a bit of a lag when whenever a city goes in development, there's like, you know, the tech companies and the, the companies that bring in business and begin to spur growth. And then there's like a second phase, I would say that, you know, all the services and kind of consultants that would help those businesses can kind of grow and support them. So it didn't really kick in yet in terms of like those consultant or, or like service businesses. And a lot of the times they would still go to the large firms in Toronto. So I was finding like the architecture and design kind of scene wasn't big as I was thinking it was. But that's not to say like real estate was so, still like really cheap. So in Kitchener, I bought that property for um, I think it's 220 you know, mm. two single, family home? S- single family home. Mm. It was yeah. really close to the LRT that was being built in downtown, nice. like close to downtown Kitchener. So and it was announced really good... at that time as well. Right. Yeah, okay, yeah, exactly. Perfect. Like only Google just moved in. They had like some tech companies starting out. So there was this like huge development plan that the city um, kind of shared, but it wasn't, it was really early days, right? It was like a five year, five to 10 year plan in terms of implementation. So at the time, like detached houses were cheaper than the condos that were being built, like right across the block. So like for, for me, it's like a no brainer, like mm-hmm. buy this, it's older, it's like a century home, but you're getting more square footage, you get a piece of land and it's cheaper than, you know, a one or two bedroom condo um, in the city. So that's where it kind of started. And I, I kind of mentioned I was bored. So I kind of used it as a project where I was renovating everything myself. So like I tore down the walls. Um, I was doing as much of the work myself. Like I rewired uh, the house from knob and tube. To, <laughs> yeah, I just like picked up a book and I was like, okay, I'm going to learn electrical. Let's do this. And then you can like as a homeowner, you can do a lot yourself. It's okay. Like I got my work ESA inspected. So it was all legit. Um, and I just you must it. feel you must feel yeah. good about yourself. That's crazy. <laughs> Dude, I just, I'm just imagining these inspectors coming and, and her telling them that she did it. She did it them. Did it herself. And I, not, they get yeah. <laughs> I think they do ask some questions to make sure, like it's not like I paid somebody under the table and yeah, then yeah. I'm pretending like it's mine. But yeah, I get like I definitely get shock faces. Even like when I go on a construction site, they, it's a little bit unexpected. Um, but. Yeah, I think it just comes with the territory and like it becomes a little bit more normal. But yeah, I I just enjoyed learning. So, you know, looking back, it's probably less of an investment because, you know, we always talk about like who, not how you shouldn't be trying to do everything yourself. But at the time, I think it just made sense for me. I was just really trying to learn the building aspect. It makes sense for a lot of people like to say newer investors to really bootstrap and do things themselves, because if you just hire things out, you're not like if I mean, you're, you're not going to know who's screwing you over and who's not, because we talk about like in real estate, there are contractors who are not always the most ethical. Like if you'd never bother to try to learn it yourself, the who not how concept doesn't apply because it's just like taking, I would argue, a lazy route. So it's good that you like bootstrap and you took the time to learn all of these things so that now when you outsource it, you actually know who's credible and who's not and, and who's actually doing work the right way. Um, one thing that I did want to ask is, is that 
So you studied um, architecture in your undergrad. Um, mm-hmm. How was that used to leverage, I guess, that Kitchener deal or was it not used to leverage? Like at what point? Because that's a, like I, I find that's like incredibly important skill set, right? Did you ever find that that knowledge you learned there was applicable to real estate early, early in your journey? I think it was in the sense like I already knew how to like read floor plans and create that. So I could really share like the vision I had with like the the contractors I would hire out. So a lot of times I find like investors communicating the ideas and it's good to have like a scope of work, but like to visually show like what you want and where things to be located. I think that's like another level of detail that is helpful. Um, but in So you're drawing of- the floor plans actually and like... Yeah, exactly. There's okay. like, this is the demolition plan. So they know exactly the walls and things they should be removing because oftentimes you find with demo guys, they're just going to destroy everything. <laughs> right. So it's good to indicate that. And then some people take a next step further and they like spray paint on site exactly what it is. But um, having that all written down, because like, I guess knowing now as an architect, like these are part of your contract documents, like the drawings themselves, as well as like what's written as your contract, like like what they're pr- providing, like that's part of what they need to um, complete for, you know, the scope of work. So, you know, like if there's something in the drawing that they've agreed to and then they go back and like, no, 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 that's not included. Then, you know, technically like that is part of your whole contract, right? Like you have proof that like, say um, they should have demolished that wall and then they have the drawing that shows that. And then they, they didn't kind of, they, they themselves missed that. So, um, I think that part translated well in terms of, I guess, doing the renovations. But I think a lot of it actually isn't really learned in terms of school, um, like the construction aspect, right? Like as an architect, you're a designer, you, you're sharing your vision of like how you want to like make this space more beautiful, but you're not always on site at school, right? You're doing all things on paper. So it's always thinking about like theory versus practice. So I think that was part of the interest in doing this renovation. It was like putting the things I learned at school into practice. Yeah, now you're taking that project management element as well and, and putting that into place. So Ma, you, yeah. you were going to add something on? Yeah, I was, I was just going to add, like, wouldn't the architectural experience and your design experience and et cetera, like, would that mean that you have a higher level of knowledge on the building process, the permitting process, et cetera, um, which then allows you to kind of be an expert on the conversion side if you were to exactly. go that route? Or are these like two completely different things here that I'm talking about? Yeah, because I'm thinking a lot of what you said is like similar to BCIN. So and I know that's they're not the exact same. So like you can even touch on the differences between those two. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess the difference between a BCIN designer and an architect is partially one's like the amount of education one has versus the other. And then also the scope of what they can offer in terms of services. So, for example, to become a BCIN designer, it's simply a couple exams. So I could have written those in like school, like as a student, like I just had some study books. I write an exams a couple hours. And then as long as I pass the exam, you know, whatever grade that they need, then I can start offering my services to anybody. So there's no like education requirement there uh, as opposed to like as an architect, I need my bachelor's degree. I need my master's in architecture. I need over 37, 3,800 hours under supervision of an architect, then I need to write four exams from the industry. And then there's like a professional like course I have to do. So there's so many kind of hoops you need to like go through to officially call yourself an architect. 
And then after that, like in terms of like the types of buildings you can design, a BCI designer can build up to or design up to, I believe it's 6,000 square feet. Um, and there's only certain categories of buildings versus architects. It's kind of like you have the full scope of services. I can do like arenas. I can do like condos. I can do like all types of buildings, all um, kind of sizes. So it's kind of like the limitations of that. Like obviously with 6,000 square feet, that's more than enough for most like homeowners and like residential. So that's why usually it's kind of a comparison of like, what do you need? Sometimes people don't want to hire an architect because it's kind of like an overkill, right? Like you have a small renovation project. Do you really need to like go that far into that kind of work? And maybe like a good comparison is like a bookkeeper versus an accountant, right? Like mm -hmm. it's kind of, you want to hire for the services that make sense for each role or consultant. Gotcha. So, so what is like, what is your role that normally in a, in a process, in, in a kind of transaction, right? Because I, I'll be honest, like I don't, I don't use a whole lot of like BCIN designers or I have never used an architect, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> so, uh, and I also don't do a lot of like conversions, right? So a lot of my stuff, like I just like super simple, like cosmetic, like new flooring, paint, kitchen, bathroom, whatever. Right. Should I be using a BCIN designer? Like, I don't know, <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like the part that isn't always clear for everybody. Like, what is everybody's role in the whole construction process? And like, who should I hire? So that's always, I think, a good question. Um, I guess in terms of like what an architecture like architect does, it could be anything from what I call pre-design and like feasibility um, into like interior design, like furniture selection like sometimes they even go that far um, in terms of like pre-designed feasibility that's kind of like your zoning so before you even touch the building at all like working with the land like what is the land zone for what can i do with it like negotiating that with the city and there's a lot of overlap in pre-design with urban planners so i would say architects are generalists that you would hire to kind of be the prime consultant we call it that organizes all the different consultants that would come into play. Um, and then everybody kind of has their own kind of specialty. So in a large enough project, you might hire um, each individual consultant and then something small, you might say only design, uh, only hire the architect. So for example, if you do a small like single family home, you might hire an architect and they'll go through the rezoning or kind of like negotiating with the city kind of process. So, um, you know, that would be your committee of adjustment, kind of like asking for more square footage or you want a like different setback, uh, that kind of thing. You might have an architect do that, but for a larger project, you might hire um, an urban planner, you know, that, that can help you with that because they're a bit more specialized in working with the city and that kind of, th and that kind of thing. Um, and then looking into like design and construction, you might want to get, uh, different engineers involved, um, structural engineer, mechanical engineer, geotechnical, if you're going to dig into the ground. And then you can even like have more specialized consultants and in, like interior design, furniture design. So it, it comes down to like talking to who you're trying to hire and be like, what services do you kind of provide? And like, what is your specialty? Like some will provide everything, but it might not be their specialty. And then like also budget, right? Like as soon as you hire like five different consultants, obviously you're going to be paying more. And then like bringing that back to your um, kind of like scope of work that you're doing. So a small renovation, like you said, Mayu, like it might not make sense to hire a designer or like an architect because 
it could just be a quick sketch that you kind of tell your contractor, hey, I want the bathroom layout like this, kind of go to town, I'll pick the materials. And then so is it usually, it's usually the conversions where people need like either a BCIN or an architect, right? Yeah, I would say so. And then anything like permit related. As a homeowner, you can submit drawings and do that yourself. Depends mm-hmm. on how comfortable you are. And then, you know, how much your time is worth at the end of the day. Awesome. This seems like a very valuable skill set as an investor when we talk about. So we mentioned strategic renovations. And on a high level, when me and Mai talk about strategic rentals, a lot of it, as Mai mentions, like flooring, paint, so on and so forth. But as we had Ryan Carr in a previous, uh, previous episode, his definition of a strate- strategic renovation is highest and best use. Like, how can you find a piece of property and maximize the value of it? Whether that can be through a conversion, adding a garden suite, um, rezoning, whatever the case is, redeveloping. And that's something that in an architect can can really see because they have that skill set. I assume they kind of have an idea of pricing and stuff like that. And can they really can see the vision? They understand the permitting process, so on and so forth. I'm curious to see how this plays to your journey, because it seems as of right now, it's really just the project management side that you're picking up on early in your journey, at least with your first property. So let's continue digging down into your second, third, fourth property and see how that skill set slowly, I guess, plays a role in your journey. Yeah, for sure. So I think like the first couple, they're single family homes. So like nothing too complicated, no renovations really involved, like mostly like cosmetic stuff. And then like later in my journey, I I dug into more um, duplex conversions. So um, kind of bought into the Niagara kind of like well-in market. And I think that's where my education kind of helped, where kind of knowing what to look for in terms of like building code and like, am I going to do this legally? If we are like, um, what are some of the limitations to what we're going to buy? Um, and then like relating that back to expenses, right? Like everything can technically be done, but like at some cost, right? So uh, the biggest factor is always like, my opinion, the ceiling height um, and kind of getting to the six foot five minute finished ceiling minimum. So, you know, if you're you're at six feet, it's generally not going to be worth it to dig uh, unless you're going to do like a, really massive kind of high end probably um, for flip. Um, So like underpinning that kind of like digging work, it's usually not worth it. Um, And kind of looking exactly knowing like what you're looking for in terms of like, if I'm going to do a duplex conversion, like how much work will be involved and just doing running some quick numbers as you're doing these walkthroughs. So you're saying if you're at six, then it's not worth it to get to the six, five, six, seven, whatever. Um, But are you saying that because you mean... You can't lower than yeah. You can lower. Yeah, you can underpin. Yep. So like, how much depth can you get from that from underpinning? So part of the limitation will be depending on like where your um, sewers coming in because like if you're lower than that, then technically you'll need like a pump to like pump it back up to like where the city sewer line is. Um, But like in terms of numbers, usually uh, the cost is the limiting factor and. I would, I would budget around 400 a linear foot. So my place in Toronto, I was getting some quotes and it's like, yeah, I was getting like 40 to 50 grand to lower my basement. Uh, what's, a, what's a linear foot versus square foot? Same thing, right? Perimeter, <laughs> right? So you take the oh, perimeter okay. of your house because you're, you're digging foundations. What they're doing is they're digging all the way down and then re-pouring the footing because the footing is what's limiting how much you're, you can lower it. So yeah, you just measure the perimeter of your house and that'll be your linear footage and then multiply that about $400 a linear foot and that'll be your 
price to lower it. How about bench pinning? Like how, what are the, I, what are the differences between both? Cause I personally haven't done either or, um, what I've done one conversion ever and hired that out to a BCIN designer. And also I just made sure the basement height was good on purchase mm-hmm. because like, as you said, it can get expensive by, uh, you know, making more ceiling, more making more ceiling space. Yeah, I think bench pinning is a bit cheaper. It's similar to the underpinning, except for that. I see like you kind of building out from the footing. You're not fully like cutting down um, into the footing and then re-pouring it. So underpinning is a lot cleaner because you essentially dig under your foundation wall and then you extend that down and pour new footing versus benching. You'll you'll notice in those basements, they kind of begin to like um, come out from the wall. So you you end up with less uh, floor space, space in your basement yeah. because it kind of like juts out a bit in terms of bench. Benching. Do you know what the price is uh, per linear foot? No, uh, I usually like if I'm going to explore it, I just go the underpinning route just because mm-hmm. like it's that much work. I'm just going to pay a little bit more to kind of just do it all the way. Um, otherwise, your other option is you can um, dig a couple holes near your foundation and footing to see where your footing actually is. If you're lucky, your slab is not right on the footing. You might have a couple inches play there. So then you could technically dig your slab up, dig all the way down to the footing, and then re-pour your slab. So you might gain, you know, like depending, like let's say four inches or something, that's all you need, then it's a lot cheaper than going all the way down and re-pouring everything. Interesting. We keep we keep sidetracking from Victoria yeah. here <laughs> and going into the technicals here, but it's, I just find it fascinating. It's not like I think even Austin, like you, you probably don't do a whole lot of the conversions or anything like that right now either, right? Yeah. No, but it's um, some it's a skill set that I do not like yeah, understanding highest and best use is a skill set that I think is is the next step for me on my journey. So yeah, it's definitely interesting to to hear all of this. Yeah. So you went into Welland and so you were looking at properties that you wanted to convert, I guess, from single families into duplexes or yeah. And that yeah, was primarily. Your third property? Yeah, so um property number one's Mississauga, two was in Kitchener, three was in St. Catharines, as uh, also single family. And then after that, I started investing in Welland and then doing the duplex conversion. So I bought three in 2020, kind of doing that strategy, uh, doing burrs, and then um, kind of sticking around yeah, like the Welland area recently as well. So why not a triplex? We're, we're going to ask the same question. <laughs> yeah, I was say, why <laughs> why not a triplex conversion? Just... Yeah, single family or triplex. That seems to be the new thing. Michael Watson, a, uh, yeah, exactly. Uh, making moves in that. <laughs> and I think it, it's a lot of like I assume the duplex conversions you're doing is a lot of work. You're you're probably just tearing down the basement from scratch, right? Um, so why not just make it a triplex? Yeah. So the first one I did in Welland is actually half done already. So like I did that one for about fifty k. It's pretty yeah, cheap. That's very so, cheap. <laughs> um, and like right, I think I want to hire this out more, but I'm still acting kind of like the general contractor. So hire all the sub trades and that's how I keep a lot of the cost down, but it is a lot of work in terms of project management. Yeah. You're probably getting like full birds and in, in well and with that with those kind of reno budgets, right? Like <laughs> Yeah, yeah, for yeah. sure. And then like with the spike in prices, that definitely helped yeah. as well. Yeah. So the first one is already half done. So it just made sense to kind of just finish up the basement, turn that into its own unit. Um, it does have potential to have a probably detached dwelling there, but I'm kind of just leaving it as like a bonus because there's like kind of easier renovations I did as I kind of scaled and picked up properties. 
Um, so the second one I have is also, it was a vertical split duplex conversion. So that's where the ground floor and the basement was one unit and then half the ground floor and the second floor is a unit. So it's a little bit more unique in terms of how we split that up. And then it has a detached garage, which I could turn into a third unit, but I haven't done that just because again, like I picked up another property and there's just an easier or like more imminent, like a project to do. So I was going to say, let's pause there and talk about that particular property right now. Okay. (laughs) How do you determine whether to do a vertical split conversion or upper lower? Because again, like I know very little about conversions. Yeah. But this um, was an upper lower, right? So the second one, was it, it was, yeah, the vertical split. And if you imagine the ground floor plan, we kind of made a wall in the middle. Yeah. So the front of the ground floor and the second floor is one unit. And then the back of the ground floor and the uh, basement is one And I would unit. assume that's more valuable for tenants and for resale value. Yeah, exactly. Like Austin probably yeah. has no idea, but me and him actually have a property that I that's exactly the same way. Austin. Oh, really? <laughs> so you have <laughs> a vertical. Split? Austin has no idea. That's what I was like. Which one was that? Elliot. Elliot. Oh, you're right. You're right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I totally forgot. I he's just it. so I he's it. so ahead of the game. He doesn't. <laughs> no, no. Elliot's uh, upper lower, right? No, upper main. Yeah, it's upper lower. But you're saying like the first floor is kind of like split in half, right? So like you get yes. living space yeah. on each floor on the main. In exactly. each unit on the main floor. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah, I didn't even that. know that. <laughs> that's um, what happens when you outsource too much. <laughs> yeah. No, that's a good thing. Yeah. Uh, Sometimes so, you don't so, need to know. So that's called the that's called the vertical split. Yeah, like in terms of like it, the divide isn't clear like floors Horizontal. by yeah, floor by yeah. floor. It's kind of like in the vertical. Uh, yeah. So I think some people would have a different definition of that. Technically, it's not like it's only vertically split on that one floor, but it's kind of like. If you imagine 3D, like two L shapes, right? Right. But yeah, in terms of like, how do you determine that? A lot of it's layout. So what happened with this house is the stair to the basement was in the middle of the floor. So there's no way to access ah. the basement without like directly from the outside. So naturally we had to like find a way in from one of the doors. So we kind of had to create that vertical wall in the ground floor. Um, Wouldn't it be easy to just move the staircase right now? No, that's like, like, too expensive, like too much structural work. And yeah, to reframe and build a new stair would be yeah. pretty significant rather than splitting it a little bit differently. So uh, we thought it'd be nice for the basement unit as well to get more light and have their living space on the ground floor. And then all the bedrooms are in the basement. So it's a little bit more unique, but um, I think it can command a bit more rent. Yeah. Okay. Is there any particular reason why more investors don't do that? Or is it just because the layout and it's just path of least resistance for the most part is basement unit? Yeah, I think so. I think it's more just like easy in terms of design to like split it by floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and then often it's just easier to say like in a single family home to a duplex, like they'll have like a separate side entry or like a back entrance to their basement. So naturally it creates that easy divide from like uh, basement unit and then like ground plus second floor as a unit. Okay, cool. So then let's talk about the property offset. So then from there you went on to a single family, another single family duplex conversion, right? Duplex mm-hmm. or triplex? Duplex. Yeah, that's a duplex. I was hoping it was a triplex, but the ceiling in the basement is a little too low. So oh, okay. and so underpinning um, here doesn't work, or like it would, um, but I felt like it wouldn't be worth the cost. Like as a duplex, it already created. Um, you know, pretty good rent. Um, 
And also, like, I would have had to underpin, also dig a new basement entry because of the way it was positioned. So it was just a lot of work that I wouldn't necessarily get as a return when I refinance. So I just went the route of duplex conversion for that. So are you finishing up that basement or are you doing the duplex on the two upper floors? Oh, that one's done. Um, okay. I, I refied that one. So I bought that one for, I think, 365 and when? I put about <laughs> when, <is> that- <laughs> yeah. when did I buy that? I bought that um, November 2020. Pretty okay. good price yeah. even for then. No, that's still a pretty good price. Yeah. Yeah. And then um, put in about 60K and then I got an ARV or appraisal at 600. Nice. Yeah, that's that's pretty fucking crazy. <laughs> like, why is like, I just yeah. processing? Like, hey, that, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it's like a full burr plus like a ton of money out. Plus like a hundred grand, plus like 50 grand, am I right? 360, you bought it for plus 60 grand. So you're all in it for 440. And then you, ARV was 600. So 80% of 600 is 480. Yeah, you're, you're refinanced plus you got like 50 grand out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. A, a, lot of, a lot of it, I feel like was like market appreciation and like... Like 2021 was crazy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but you could probably put like 50 grand towards like market appreciation, which still means it still would have been a full right? Yeah, pretty solid. So, and, um, you went on a buying spree, right? And and how were you able to? Were you doing JV partners, raising capital, money saved, or leveraging from previous properties? Yeah, I was all leveraging previous pro- properties. Like, there's a huge delay from the beginning, like when I bought my first one, and then. So I bought my first one in 2011, then I bought my own in Kitchener in 2015, and then the bought the next one 2017. And they're all single families. And then as I was saying, like I sold that first one in 2020, like March 2020. So it kind of just was all accumulating. And then I started like educating myself about like real estate and like how to scale, like different strategies and that kind of stuff. So I think it just all came to a head at in 2020 to kind of like, oh, like. I can actually like understand like the strategy and now I have all this capital that I could pull out. Um, so it just all was like good timing in terms of like me educating myself. Now I have some capital and then now I'm going to put that into work with all like the burst strategy. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a big lesson there, which is that like for a lot of us, we kind of have what we call like kind of nest egg properties, right? It's just a property that you don't really touch. You haven't really bird it. You've got a significant amount of equity in it. And we know it's not really. Do a like, lot of us actually have that? <laughs> a lot of people do. A lot, Austin, I'm sure you have it as well. You probably have. Well, we have one that we couldn't refi because I couldn't yeah, qualify. Right? Like neither that, could you. <laughs> yeah, both of us decided to quit a job before yeah. the refi, right? So there's, you know, there's properties like that 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 are just kind of like nest eggs, and there's a point in time down the road where everyone kind of runs out of capital, or you learn something and you go, you know what, I want to redeploy that capital, and it's always good to kind of just keep evaluating your ROE, right? Um, yeah. So that's awesome, Victoria. So, so like. Did we did we cover all the properties? Four four properties there, right? Um, and you bought another three this year, if oh, I'm yeah, not mistaken, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So tell us about so. that. How do you buy three properties? Wait, hold on. Before we get to that, your single families, any way to convert? Uh, probably not in St. Catharines. I heard that's like pain in the ass, but like the one <laughs> yeah, in... Yeah, too low. Yeah, the, the other Kitchener. ones. Yeah, were you able yeah, to so, convert? Yeah, yeah, I explored that in Kitchener. It's a crawl space, way too low. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> And I, I've looked into a tiny home. It's too small, the lot. And I talked to the city and they're not favorable in giving me a variance. So I don't think I'm going to spend more money to... Let's quickly talk about these tiny homes, right? Because like <laughs> yeah. me and Austin have 
a couple of properties together that are good sized lots where we thought about. Oh, um, huge! Like 181 depth and like 60 frontage plus. Yeah, right. Yeah. Why does the cost to construct these so damn high? Like it's like almost 200 grand sometimes. So like, or like 150. Okay, not 200, but like yeah. still 150. It's still pretty significant to construct what's like a small unit, right? At that point, you might as well just go a little bit bigger and put like a full house in there, right? Or am I missing something in the case of tiny homes? Like, are they actually like that much cheaper than a normal house? They're not cheaper per se, um, but the fact that you're allowed to build them is the unique factor, right? Like you're in terms of zoning, um, regular zoning, you only, you're only allowed to have the single family. So with these new bylaws that are coming in, you could potentially have three units on a property outright. So you have your main unit, then you're allowed a secondary suite. And then with the introduction of like garden suite or like tiny home kind of bylaws, you're, if your lot is big enough, you can add a third unit. So that's, I guess, what the city is trying to encourage this like incremental development in terms of like increasing density across the board and not just like single family or condos. Like there's some, something in between. So, so that's the unique factor. What's the cost of building a tiny home? I believe when we were speaking to Ryan Carr, he said it's not justified. The cost of construction, labor, materials versus the upside you get from the property. And this may be for his particular market in Durham. He said it just didn't, it didn't make sense. He did one tiny home and stopped. Is that right. based on your research? I'm not sure how deep you dug into it. Have you figured out what kind of the cost is to construct one of these? Yeah, in terms of like what I'm doing, like I'm looking into designing a tiny home that's prefabricated and modular. Mm -hmm. So I've been working and talking to different manufacturers in, in Ontario. And some of the prices they've been coming up at is ballpark, like a 600 square foot. That's like about two bedrooms, um, $180,000. Okay. So if you break that down, it's about 300 a square foot. Which is not too bad when you mm -hmm. kind of compare it to just regular building costs, like especially with like the way COVID is nowadays. Like when we build um, like really fancy, like higher end, like residential homes, you're looking at 400, 450 a square foot. So 300 a square foot is pretty like a normal that, price main range in yeah. my mind. Mm -hmm. And so that includes like all the utility connections, like full insulation, like permits. No, that'd be the house. That's the house itself. That's a, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so if what's you include the, utilities is a lot more. Yeah. What's the pros and cons of a pre-fabricated uh, tiny home? The pro is that you can begin uh, site construction at the same time your house is being constructed. So, in in theory, like your timeline is condensed a lot. Another thing is that you're building inside a factory, so all of the weather kind of conditions is all controlled. So, um, you don't have yeah rain kind of setting you back in terms of your timeline and your build. So that's one thing. And then also, like, I guess as you scale, I think uh, that you'll you'll gain some kind of kind of benefits of that, because hopefully, I guess, like as people get into this more, you could be like, hey, I want that kind of model. And then you kind of can get it all, almost off the shelf or mm -hmm. at least like they've been building a bunch of them. So they kind of streamline their kind of production process as well. The downside is like you don't have as many options in terms of like um, maybe uh, well, I was going to say like customization and design, like technically everything is like can be custom made, whether it's like prefabricated or not. Like that's almost just like a design delivery method. But often I think it, it's there's some limitations in terms of design, because if you imagine like a prefabricated module is going to have to get shipped to site. So it needs to fit on the road 
um, and that kind of thing. So like when I talk to different manufacturers, you're limited to about like 13 feet um, because beyond that, you can't really ship it. Um, and then there's like site limitations to depending on like how big these modules are, depending on how they fit together on site. So if you have like a very unique site and property, like it might not be feasible. I have no idea what we're going to call this episode because we've talked about so <laughs> many things in like one episode, yeah. but it's a, it's just like, you've got a lot of knowledge on these different like building aspects that most real estate investors don't have. Right. Um, super valuable. Um, cause so, so this year, like, I, I don't think we ever dug into like the properties that you bought this year. Cause those two, um, properties that you converted, you bought last year. What, like, what are you doing differently this year? Like, have you changed your strategy? Or are you sticking to the conversions in Welland and, and Niagara region? Or, um, what are you doing differently today? Sure. Yeah. One was, uh, also duplex conversion in Welland. So kind of sticking to that strategy and yeah. that was with the joint venture partner. So that's something I'm beginning to kind of introduce is like, um, yeah, working with others who are interested, especially like having done a bunch of those projects um, can really show like what's the strategy. These are roughly the numbers we're kind of playing with. And like, this is what you can kind of anticipate. So, yeah, it's just been talking to different people who are interested in investing and don't really want to put in like the time and effort into that. And then on other front, I bought another property in Welland. It's going to be a lot severance. So is that on double wide lot? It's a triplex. And then I'm hoping to sever that and then build another triplex or yeah, exploring what will be built there. It looks like a fourplex is a bit of a stretch. So probably a triplex on the new lot. Yeah. Wow. Awesome. So yeah, like you're, you're definitely leveling up and um, just for that project there, have you figured out like financing situation? Um, Cause it's going to be a construction loan, I assume. Right. Yeah. I think I definitely need to explore that more especially because I do want to try it as like a prefab build as well. Okay. So my understanding of like how construction and construction draws work, I'm not sure how that would apply when it comes yeah. to prefab. So yeah, it'd be interesting to kind of do that research and learn about that more. But yeah, that's all new territory. And I think that's what's exciting for me. And then hopefully I can share that process with other people who are interested in going into development. Cool. All right, Victoria. So I think that is a perfect segue. Generally, we like to ask our guests kind of like three <laughs> questions near the end of the podcast. Um, but, you know, given you started somewhere and kind of what you're doing in the last like three years is completely different or it's, or it's leveling up pretty fast. So um, where do you kind of see yourself going in the next five years and, and what do you want to be doing then? Yeah, for me, I think it's continuing with merging like real estate, uh, real estate investing, real estate development with design and architecture. And exploring what those possibilities are, whether it's like through prefab building or like tiny homes or like really like how do you kind of take like new technology and ways of building to um, make an impact on the world. So I think the construction and architecture industry is so old school. There's like so much that could be done to improve it. So it's also exciting to see how you can kind of contribute to that. So are you basically working for yourself now? No, I still work at a firm oh, okay. uh, full time, okay. but um, yeah, continue to kind of like explore some of these projects on my own. Huh. Awesome. And have you ever done, um, well, I know you, you've done it for Will and I, but like, are you offering services where you help other investors either in design, um, conversion, so on and so forth? And just uh, 
for those who are interested for the flip that Will and I are doing, if you guys follow me on Instagram, make sure to do so. Um, that progress you're seeing there, a lot of the design elements um, was was because we got Victoria down there to, to take a look at the property. I had a very unique layout and figure out what's the best way to make this odd layout something luxurious. Um, but yeah, so are you offering those services to other investors? Yeah, for sure. I think like I started with kind of prof- like offering um, design services for people who are interested in doing duplex conversions with building permits. But I've been talking to different investors and everybody's situation is so unique in terms of like what they're hoping to do, what they're hoping to hire out. Um, you know, like I think a lot of people are looking to hire out and scale, but then there's a lot of the work they want to do themselves still. So I think that's just all to say, like, I think the best way is just to reach out and we can find a way to like maybe finding a way to work together that's unique for your situation because it's hard to say like this project is going to be this price when like maybe you want to be involved in as the general contractor and that kind of thing so it's better to just have that conversation about how we can can we work together and then tailor make um our relationship for that awesome and i uh i didn't actually ask the second question i'm sorry i kind of went off the second question here is is if you want 10 million dollars and you had seven days to spend it, how would you do so? Yes. It can't all be on real estate, FYI. So I know. I know that's what everybody wants to answer. But for the real estate side, I think I've always just thought like I used, used to travel quite a bit. And I think I still want to do that into the future. So I'd find a couple places around the world that I think I'd love and they'd be good, like kind of base camp spot and then like have a home there. So like maybe in Asia and like Europe, and then those can be spots that I could always like um, kind of vacation from. Um, And then like, I guess in terms of like other ways I would spend it beyond real estate, uh, part of it would be with like family, I think um, just like helping them out, like paying off their houses, stuff like that, maybe go on a vacation together. Um, And then um, in terms of like things that would be fun, it would be just to... Uh, maybe do some like angel investing and in, like take companies that are cool and I think are um, interesting and investing some money and building my own company, whether it's like the prefab stuff or tiny home thing or um, really working on passion projects. I think that's what would be the main goal of spending that money. Why wow, you really don't have any like luxury wants, eh? Yeah, no, there's like and like investing. <laughs> It's, yeah, all good. it's all good Victoria. <laughs> <laughs> luxuries um, it'd just be i think i'm a fan of watches oh okay um but the yeah i think that'd be the only only thing cool all right Victoria, watches are not cheap by the way uh, you, know? yeah. <laughs> you see some of these things on rappers is like two mil on the wrist so <laughs> <laughs> i don't think that's gonna be Victoria. awesome <laughs> <laughs> um all right victoria so if you could have a uh, dinner with anyone dead or alive who would you choose and why Oh yeah, this is always tough. I feel like it's a tough question when I was like thinking about and watching <laughs> all your uh, previous podcasts. But I was thinking about it, and I think for one, in in terms of like the business aspect, I'd want to say Michelle Romano. She's a Dragon on Dragon's Den, and just following her journey and like the way Silicon she's Valley girl, right? Yeah, she just like built uh, so many companies, and it's just interesting to see how she like navigates that it's like all in like different kind of areas and industries and just being able to understand the way she thinks and um that kind of thing almost like a mentor i think i'm always trying to learn from other people so um yeah 
Thank you so much for your time, Victoria. This was a fantastic episode and you're doing some fantastic things in real estate. It's been amazing to see you grow your portfolio and doing like things that are getting out of your comfort zone, but really using your unique skill set that I could probably say not many investors have out there and really using that to your advantage and leverage. Um, It's cool seeing the new, I guess, kind of fun uh, ideas and strategies that you're trying to implement, like prefabricated triplexes. Let us know how that goes. And (laughs) if you start that, we're going to have another episode with you. But um, yeah, if people want to reach out to you, connect with you, um, how could they do so? I think the best way would be on Instagram. So my handle is at buildxlab. And then you can also go to my website. It's buildxlab.com. And yeah. Fantastic. And for the listeners out there, the audience, if you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, rate it, do whatever you can to support the podcast. Trying to get to 100 views by the end of the year. It helps bring fantastic guests like Victoria out here. So until next time, everyone, make sure to invest smarter and live better. Take care. Bye.